well-reasoned answers and explanations alone will not convince people to believe against their will. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. I want to talk today about a question that may come up when we are talking with someone about the faith and we think we put it out there, we put the Word of God out there, we put the truth out there to people. And yet sometimes we're a little surprised when they don't seem to respond with, with understanding or with faith or with conviction. And so we wonder, you know, what, what, what is happening here? Well, I want to talk about facts, faith, and the heart. I wonder, is belief, is belief simply a function of being given facts? You know, that if we give people facts, well, then they will believe those facts, right? No. Does correct information necessarily produce conviction? Does faith always follow from being given right answers to questions people might ask? Or is there something more to belief than just hearing facts? I wonder, how might the answers to these questions affect how we talk to people about Jesus? And how might it affect our own walk in faith? want to continue today in our series, Unique, The Life, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a harmony of the Gospels, putting the message of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all together in one flowing, harmonious account here, a chronological order, uh, based on the order of events as suggested in this book by John MacArthur called One Perfect Life. We are continuing today with this. Questions, questions, questions. I started off here with a series of questions this morning. Well, we're going to be looking at another series of questions from the Word of God here. Some questions that were asked of Jesus, who then had a question of his own for those who were questioning him. So we're going to look in Matthew 22 and Mark 12 and Luke 20, a harmony of those accounts here. And what is the big idea that I want us to take away from it? Well, that is this, that well-reasoned answers and explanations alone will not convince people to believe against their will. See, faith is more than just facts or reasons or, or evidence. There's also this matter of the heart, this matter of the will. Now, this doesn't mean we shouldn't have or be prepared with answers and explanations, but those things alone will not convince people, particularly when it goes against their will, when they are invested in some way in their belief or their worldview then. So before we look at that, a little context for our text here, Jesus has journeyed to Jerusalem for the final time in his earthly ministry. He knows that he will soon be going to the cross where he will give his life. He has presented himself to the nation, but many have misunderstood him and the ruling religious authorities have rejected him. 
Jesus wept over the city because he knew the unbelieving hearts of the people. And he knew the judgment that lay ahead for it because of their rejection of him. You know, earlier in the Passion Week, he cursed a fig tree because it was not bearing any, fig, any fruit. And Jesus used that as an object lesson for the judgment that awaited the nation Israel because of their fruitless unbelief. But also in that, he illustrated the power of trust in God to accomplish the seemingly impossible. But even as some did believe in Jesus, many, including the religious leaders of the nation, rejected him. And Jesus called them out for their self-righteous hypocrisy. Unsurprisingly, they didn't like that, and they sought to kill him. Today, we will listen in then as they try to trip him up in his words by asking questions, but these weren't all honest questions. They were questions with ulterior motives. They weren't really interested in answers to honest questions, but rather they had an agenda. They had an agenda of trying to undermine him and put him in an untenable position. That was their goal. They had rejected him. Now they were going to question him, and they were going to get him to get tripped up in his words, undermining him, and put him in an untenable position before the people. Would they succeed in their efforts? What do you think? Well, let's find out what happened. We're told, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous. The Pharisees sent to him their disciples with the Herodians to catch him in his words in order to deliver him to the power and authority of the governor. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and rightly teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you show personal favoritism, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But Jesus perceived their craftiness and, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? You hypocrites, show me the tax money. Bring me a denarius that I may see it. And so they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people. And when they had heard these words, they marveled at his answer and kept silent. And they left him and went their way. So here is the first question Jesus is presented with. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, why were they asking this? Did they really want to know? Was it an honest question? No, they were wanting to trip him up. They were looking to get him in trouble because either way he might answer that, he's going to get in trouble with somebody, right? 
If you say, yes, pay your taxes, well, then this goes against the people who, they don't like Rome, they don't like the oppression of Rome, and he's saying, what, we should go along with our oppressors? But if he says, no, don't pay your taxes, now who's in trouble with? With Rome, right? And he's an insurrectionist, he's a threat to their rule. So they think, ah, we've got him now. But you know, the other thing about this incident is that it illustrates that sometimes controversy or an enemy in common can make for strange bedfellows. Notice who it was that came before him with this question. It was the Pharisees and also the Herodians. We know the Pharisees, who they were, right? Who were the Herodians? Well, they, were, they weren't so much a religious group as they were a political group. These were people who were in favor of Rome, that is the Herods, that they, they were cooperating with Rome. So you had the Pharisees who opposed Roman rule, and then you had the Herodians who were in favor of it and were using it to their advantage. And yet they're both of them coming together now to ask this question of Jesus. Why? Because neither one of them wants Jesus on the picture, in the picture here. Both of them want to get rid of him. Both of them perceive him as a threat to them. So they come together. Can you imagine? We, we don't see it in the, in the scripture, but you've got to wonder, what kind of, what kind of conversation? That, this didn't just come up out of the blue, did it? There was a conversation that happened between these groups at some point, right? These two groups that they don't like each other at all, but they've got a common enemy in Jesus and that. How can we get them? Aha, here's the question. This will get them. So they send this delegation then to try to trip Jesus up. Notice how they started off. They, they said some pretty nice things about him there, didn't they? Oh, we know that you are a teacher of the truth. We know that you don't show personal favoritism. You, you, don't, you don't couch your answer, you know, depending on, or you don't favor one person over the other. But, you know, you're equally concerned for all. You're concerned for God's word and for God's truth. So, and we, we applaud you, Jesus. Did they really? No. They were just kind of buttering him up. They didn't believe that at all. And their hypocrisy was clearly obvious and evident to Jesus, and he saw that they did not believe in him at all. So they asked this question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? If he says yes, he's in trouble with this group. If he says no, he's in trouble with that group. How's he going to answer? Hmm. So what does Jesus say? He says what? Show me the money. Now, not in the Jerry Maguire sense. Show me the money! Right? Not in that sense. Right? But no. Show me the money. Bring me a denarius. Show that to me. Now, this denarius, this was a coin that was used to pay the tax. And by the way, this tax that, that is, nobody likes paying taxes, right? We don't like to do that, but they certainly serve an important function, don't they, Linda? Yes, Linda. <laughs> so Linda, the treasurer, knows the importance of that. Well, so they certainly serve a function. Nobody likes that. But sometimes, though, that tax might get used for something you don't like, Right? What was this? What do you suppose this tax was used for? It was used to pay for 
the Roman soldiers who were occupying them. In other words, they were paying the co- Rome's cost to be occupied. It costs money to have troops stationed somewhere, doesn't it? So what was Rome's uh, solution to this? The people they're occupying will pay for the cost of their own occupation. You see why people might be a little touchy about this tax? Should we pay that or not? So what does Jesus say? He says, show me the money. Show me, bring it to me. Whose image do you see on there? And whose image was on there? Caesar. So he's say, what? Render or give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but render or give to God what is God's. Kind of splitting the middle of that. So Jesus reminds them, look, there are some things that we must do. We don't really have a choice in this. And in fact, we're even told in Scripture that what? As followers of Jesus, that except when we're told to do something that goes against God, goes against his word, we are to what? To obey the governing authorities. So yeah, you must pay that. Give to Caesar what Caesar is due. But where does our ultimate loyalty lie? To God. We render, we give unto God what God is due. So there is a sphere of authority that Caesar or the government has been given, and you must give them their due there. But there is the ultimate sphere of authority that belongs to God, and we must give to God what he is due. So in other words, we have both political and spiritual responsibilities. It's not one or the other. It's both. And so they're amazed at his answer. And because of that, both the Pharisees and the Herodians were silenced. And we're told this. The same day, some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man dies... By the way, this is a little long and convoluted. Stay with us here through this, right? It says, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were with us seven brothers. The first took a wife and died, and after he had married and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. And the second took her as wife, and he died childless. And then the third took her, and in like manner the seven also. And they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, which they don't believe in, by the way, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife of the seven will she be? For all seven had her as wife. I love Jesus' answer. Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage 
nor can they die anymore, for they are like angels of God in heaven and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But concerning the dead, that they rise, have you not read what was spoken to you by God in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage? How God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses showed, therefore, that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. You are therefore greatly mistaken." And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. So here's the segment. Whose wife of the seven will she be? Understand here, here was another group. We have the the Pharisees, a religious group. You had the Herodians, that was a political group. You have the Sadducees, they were another religious group. But they also were trying to discredit Jesus and his ministry. You might say that the Sadducees were the religious liberals of their day. And they said that there is no resurrection or angels or spirits. Also, they accepted only the books of Moses as scripture. What, the first five books, the Pentateuch? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They thought only that was scripture, and they didn't accept anything else that came after that as scripture. Probably what they were most known for then is that they denied the resurrection. They thought there was no afterlife, there was no resurrection of the dead. When you died, that was it. That was the end of your existence then. And so I know... I'm really fighting the temptation here, but you know the joke that has to be made, right? You see, the Sadducees, they did not believe in the resurrection, and that is why they were sad, you see, right? You have to say that every single time. It's, it's a law. It's actually written, you know, in the law with that. So. But no, but they did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in any of the books of Scripture other than the first five, the books of Moses, So you'll notice how the question they posed to Jesus came from the books of Moses. And notice Jesus' answer. Where did his answer come from? Book of Exodus, one of the books of Moses. They're what they accepted as scripture, right? So purposely here now, they're, again, are are they asking an honest question? No, they're being wise guys, right? Trying to trip them up. Were they really expecting Jesus to say, oh, gee, you know, I hadn't thought of that. That is a tough question. But no, what does Jesus say? Essentially, he says, you guys are idiots. You don't know anything, essentially, right? That's what he says. He says, what? You are mistaken, for you know not the scriptures nor the power of God. In other words, what? You're idiots. You're idiots, right? So what are they? So they so they're trying to trip him up, and they they cite this story of a woman who married a man who later died. Now you might wonder, what's this all about? Well, there was in the law of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter twenty-five, 
you have something there which is established, which is called the Leveret marriage. It's an order. You know, now, remember, at this time, uh, women were especially vulnerable, economically vulnerable, vulnerable in every way. And so if a, woman, if a woman's husband died, and if she had no other family, she was particularly vulnerable. And so there was a law that a man's brother could take her as a wife, that he would care for her then. That was the purpose of that. But saying, well, what if uh, you know, she didn't have uh, kids who could care for her? So her brother takes her, and then, well, they don't have kids either, and then he dies, and so on. And there's seven brothers, and this goes, and again, they're just purposely doing it to try to make the situation as ridiculous as possible so they think they've got Jesus cornered or trapped. Like, yeah, well, what are you going to do? You know, none of them were able to provide children for her, and now she's died too. And, well, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? Because what? They're thinking of they don't believe in the resurrection. They're mocking the resurrection, right? So they're saying, yeah, well, what? what yeah, whose wife is she going to be? What's going what's to happen now? They were trying to make the resurrection appear ridiculous. But Jesus points out, well, the reason you have this problem and you see it this way is what? Is because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. That's what? You're idiots and you're ignorant and you don't get it. You don't understand the scriptures. You don't understand the afterlife and the resurrection. And you certainly don't understand the power of God. Is it really such a hard thing for the God who created everything out of nothing by the power of his word, is it really a hard thing for him to resurrect the dead? No. And you don't know that. You don't get that at all. So Jesus corrects them of the two false notions that they had. The first he said is what? First, heaven, heaven is not simply an extension of like life on this earth that it's not going to be just like a continuation of life on this earth and the way everything is in, in this world. Aren't you glad for that, by the way? Now, there certainly is going to be a continuity. We've talked about this before. I think heaven and the new earth is, in many ways, is going to be a lot like our lives today. But what? Without sin. And that's hard for us to imagine that a world with that, Right. But they were kind of thinking it's just, just, just like, like the resurrection and the afterlife and that. It's just like a continuation of this. So, yeah, so whose wife is she going to be now? And he says, no, you don't understand. That's not how things are going to work in the afterlife or in heaven. That there is no marriage in heaven. Why? Because it is no longer necessary. Marriage is something that God has designed for now in this life. It's designed certainly for companionship, but also for procreation. And it's also an illustration of God's love for, of Christ's love for the church. We see those purposes in others in Scripture. And that will not be the case in the afterlife. So no, there is no marriage or giving in marriage in heaven. By the way, I'm, I'm going to step out on a little bit of a limb here, okay? And I'm just going to speculate very briefly. Sometimes some have said, have been so, you know, that, that are so disappointed when they say that there's no marriage in heaven or the, or the new earth. And they think, but, but I love my spouse. We love each other so much. And I can't imagine that we're not going to have this and, and that. To which I would say this. Yes, Jesus is teaching here that no, that marriage as we understand it 
will not exist in heaven or the new earth. It was something that was for now, for this time. And so people say, well, oh, no. But, but what I would say to that is this, is that we can say that it's going to be replaced by something so much better. And that, what is that? Well, that is recognize what it has all been pointing to, which is what? The marriage of Christ and the church. That it's going to be subsumed by something so much better in that. Okay? Now, there's no real speculating about that. That's there. But I will say this too. Does this mean then that, uh, some, that, that if you were, loved your spouse, you were married for many years, you had a wonderful marriage together, that in heaven you're no longer going to know that person or recognize? No, you will still know them. You will still love them. And I would suggest actually your love for that spouse will be known and experienced in even a far greater way than it ever was here on earth. So don't think, well, what do you mean we're not going to be married? Well, no, you won't have marriage. You won't experience marriage in the way that we do here now. But I'm saying that you will experience that love for your spouse on a far deeper and more profound level than we can understand right here now. So just because there isn't marriage doesn't mean you're not going to continue to actually deeply love and have relationship with your spouse in heaven or the new earth. Make sense? So Jesus says what? There is not heaven, or there is not marriage in heaven, but rather believers in glorified bodies, they will be like the angels in that regard. That is what? Angels don't reproduce themselves. Well, we're not going to have procreation in heaven. That's a part of what marriage is for. Well, we're not going to have that anymore but whether we will be like the angels and that they do not reproduce themselves. Notice Jesus says here that we will be like the angels. He does not say we will be angels. How many times have you seen that, you know, where someone, someone dies, oh, God needed another angel. No, he already has a countless multitude, all right? He did, it's like we don't become angels. We remain human beings, right? So first of all, Jesus says, you don't understand heaven. You don't understand marriage and how it will be there. But then second, he raises this thing. You also, you don't understand the reality of the afterlife or the continuing life, if you might say, and the resurrection. Because he said, why didn't they believe in the resurrection? Well, because they only accepted the Pentateuch. And so in their opinion, when you look at the first five books of Moses, you don't see clear teaching of an afterlife there. I would disagree with that, but, but that was their view. That was their perspective on that. So Jesus says, okay, well, let me, let me quote you something that you do accept as scripture. And that's in the book of Exodus where Moses encounters God at the burning bush. And he says to them, he does not say, no, see, he says, God said to them, what? I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of, of Isaac. I am the God. Not, I was the God. I am the God. In other words, what? They're still alive. They're still here with me. I am their God now. Not, I was their God. I am their God. It is a continuing, ongoing relationship. Oh. Not, I was their God, I am their God. 
So this I am, God is the great I am, isn't he? But he also says, I am their God now. And notice again, he makes this point from the book of Exodus, which they was one of the books that the Sadducees accepted as scripture. So as a result of this encounter, the crowds were astonished all the more at his teaching. Now, once again, Jesus had successfully answered and defeated the religious experts. But, oh, we've got another question now for you, Jesus. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of the scribes, a lawyer, came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him a question, testing him, and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment of all in the law? So, you know, they had some 613, by their count, some 613 commandments in the law. And they want to know, what's the most important of all? What's the biggest one of all? What's the greatest of all of them? And there was debate about that among them. And so he's going to ask them this. Why? Because he really wants to know what is the greatest commandment of all? No, because he's looking, again, to embroil Jesus in controversy. Because they would argue. I know this is hard to believe that, that religious people or, or uh, law experts would get together and argue about the law, right? No, but they did just like we do today. Do we ever argue about Bible interpretation in the church today and understand? Of course, you know, we do that too. Well, they were doing it too. Well, of these 613, which is the most important? What is the greatest? So Jesus, you tell it. Why? Because he's looking to embroil him in the argument about which is the greatest commandment. So he comes to him, he says, eh, well, what do you think, Jesus? What is, it? What is the greatest commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, what? If we love God with all of our heart and we love our neighbor as ourselves, that kind of summarizes all the law of God right there. And if we're doing that, then we're being, then we're being obedient to all the other law, aren't we? So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Notice he didn't say he was in the kingdom yet, but he said what? You're not far. Your light, the light is starting to come on in you. You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him anymore. So which is the great commandment of all in the law? 
The Pharisees had heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, so now they send another, one of their experts in the law, probably hoping to prompt up again another controversy. But Jesus replies, though, with a way that really summarizes the law right there. Summarizes the Ten Commandments. Remember in the Ten Commandments, you have the first table, the first four, which have to do with our relationship with God. And then you have the second table, the last six, that have to do with our relationship with other people, right? So he says, well, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's going to cover those first four commandments right there if we're loving God, right? If we're loving him, we're not going to have idols. We're not going to put anything in God's place ahead of him. We're going to honor him. We're going to keep the Sabbath. We're going to do those things because we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second then, what, if we love our neighbors, if we're really loving our neighbor, we're not going to steal from them. We're not going to lie to them. We're not going to murder them. We're not going to commit adultery. We're not going to covet. We're not going to do any of those things because we love our neighbor as ourselves. And so these two commandments, on, all, on these hang all the rest. We see where Mark reports that this teacher of the law said that Jesus has correctly answered the question and that, in fact, love for God and one's neighbor is more important than all the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. In other words, there was some light beginning to shine in this man's heart. Now, he wasn't there yet. But it was starting to shine, and Jesus said what? He is not far from the kingdom of God. But then we're told from then on, no one else dared to ask him any questions. And the reason was obvious, because Jesus is answering their questions in a way no one else ever had done before. They were amazed by that. So they've been asking Jesus questions. Now it's time for a little turnabout is fair play, Right? Oh, you guys are asking me questions. You're trying to trip me up. Let me ask you a little question. Let's see how you might answer that. So they did not get the better of Jesus. Do you think Jesus and his question is going to get the better of them? You better bet he is, right? Now, what was one of the problems that they had with you? They had a number of issues with Jesus, why they were opposed to him. But one of the problems that they had with Jesus is he, this man, is making claims about being God. Now, can you understand why that might be a little bit of a problem, why that would create some issues for people, right? What would you think if I stood up here one Sunday and announced to you that I am God in the flesh? You'd get fired. Yeah, I'd get fired. You couldn't have. And of course, you know, the difference, though, between me and Jesus is, besides the fact that he actually was and is God and I'm not, is he could prove it. He had the evidence to back it up that he was God. It would take you about one half of a nanosecond to prove that I'm not God, okay? But that was one of the issues they had with him, is like this alleged blasphemy. That here's this man who claims to be God. So knowing that, first of all, they didn't like the fact that he was claiming to be the Messiah, the son of David. And they certainly didn't like the fact that he was claiming to be God in the flesh. 
So Jesus has a little question for them now that just might touch on those terms, son of David and son of God. So he says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, while he taught in the temple, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. Then Jesus answered and said, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And the common people heard him gladly. So here's the question. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? If David is the Messiah is a son of David, meaning what? That he's a descendant of David. And yet David then, speaking under the inspiration of Scripture, says, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, referring to the Messiah, how is it that this son of David can also be referred to as Adonai, Yahweh? Hmm. Now they knew the Messiah was going to be son of David, a descendant of David. Jesus knew that. He accepted that. Remember the, the Palm Sunday? The, as he was going in, the people were shouting what? Hosanna to the son of David, the Messiah, the descendant of David who is our ruler, our Savior, the anointed one. But Jesus demonstrates that Messiah would be more. Now, Messiah was and is human. Jesus is a man. He's human. He is a descendant of David. But he isn't only that. He's also God. So what does Jesus do? He quotes from Psalm 110, where David ascribes deity to the Messiah. Now, if we just read it in the English there, we don't see it. It says where the Lord, all caps, said to my Lord. But if you see that in the Hebrew there, it says what? Yahweh, which is what? The proper name, personal name of God, said to my Lord, to Adonai, which is be one of their words for God. In other words, God said to David, speaking of Messiah, God said to Messiah, God, God said to God this. How can God speak to God? Because Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. How can you be with God and be God? It's the Trinity, right? So how can Yahweh say to Adonai, sit down? How How can... God speak to God because he's a trinity, right? 
So yes, he is son of David. But David acknowledges he's more than simply Messiah. He is his Lord, his God. Yahweh said to my God, sit at my right hand and I'll make your enemies your footstool. God said to God, David speaking of Messiah, he calls Messiah Adonai, my God. What do you think of that, Pharisees? Hmm. They didn't have an answer for him. But the common people, what? They were like, well, they were loving this. You ever like seeing a bully, seeing a bully get put in their place? This was the Pharisees. Do you think, now I'm not going to say every single one without exception was the case. But overall, the, what? the Pharisees were what? Self-righteous, hypocritical, arrogant, harsh with people. So what do you think it was when they, when they saw this, this rabbi from Nazareth silencing them and asking them questions they couldn't answer? Right? So the people heard him gladly. Earlier I asked, is belief simply a function of being given facts? Does correct information produce conviction? inevitably does faith always follow from being given right answers to questions well it doesn't or is there something more to belief than just hearing facts there is this doesn't mean facts aren't important (laughs) and we shouldn't give them but it just means what facts in and of themselves don't produce it don't produce a heart change in people And I wonder, how might the reality of that affect then how we talk to people about Jesus, about our faith? Well, you know, the truth is faith does not automatically follow facts because faith involves the heart and the will and the priorities of a person, their wants and their desires. All of that gets gets mixed into it, doesn't it? Sometimes people don't believe, not because they can't believe or can't understand the facts, but what? They don't believe because they refuse to believe. They don't want to believe. Why? Because it, it goes against some other higher priority or concern they may have. So they choose not to believe because of that. So yes, faith does not always automatically follow facts, but Faith involves the heart, the will of a person, and the reality is faith is the work of God's Spirit, isn't it? It's a work of God's Spirit as He convicts and regenerates people's hearts. You can tell people all the right information. You can put together a brilliant, logical argument, but without the work of the Spirit, people will not believe. So we must depend on God's Spirit then as we talk with people. So we must depend on God's Spirit. But at the same time, though, that does not mean, though, that we should not also consider carefully how we go about talking to people about the faith. I think that we would do well to consider the question of how people are 
invested in their beliefs? And how might that investment in their current beliefs lead to a resistance to truth, to hearing truth? You know, I've had a number of uh, fruitful discussions about this with a, a man that we are blessed to have in our church who's very skilled in understanding how to talk to people about their faith. And that man is Don Vino. If, uh, I was, in fact, I was going to bring him up here and we're going to say, Don, rather than me prattling on about this, you tell us, what does it mean to think about how is a person invested in their beliefs right now? How does that affect that conversation with them? But Don's not here today, and that's all right. Should we forgive Don for not being here? Yes, yes, we can. No, actually, he's at home. He's taking care of joy in that. So he's, he's fine. He's taking care of joy. But in these conversations, he talks about, well, you know, again, and you, you don't just present facts. That doesn't mean we don't present facts or evidence at all. We don't. We, we, we do do that. But that in itself doesn't convince people necessarily, does it? It's a work of God's spirit, and we need to be aware of that and pray for that. But also on our end, how might it affect how we talk with someone? Well, it might mean considering if this person... If someone came to you and asked you to completely change your view, your whole view of the world of truth and reality and all of that, would you be, and and maybe they presented an argument that really sounded good to you, would you be ready to just abandon everything that you believe? Just say, no, because you are deeply invested in that, right? And it's going to affect so much of your life. Maybe it's going to affect your family, your relationships. Think about that now. Like, you know, sometimes we're, um, like some presenting like particularly like say a, a person with a Muslim, uh, Muslim background that it's like, boy, <laughs> them changing and, and, and believing this, is that going to have some serious repercussions in their life, in their family? or their, It could cost them their life, right? So when we talk to others, think about how does this affect, how would it change and this affect their life? How might they be invested in this and to address those needs and those concerns in their life? Rather than putting forth all the arguments and the facts and saying, okay, you believe now, is talk about those things with them as well. About how maybe they're concerned for their family. Maybe they're concerned about how, what this is going to mean on the job for them or, or, or who knows, any other number of things. Think about that when you're talking with someone and then what? Depend on, pray for that person and depend on the power and the spirit and the movement of the spirit. Don't just think, if I give a right answer, that should, that's enough. It isn't. It isn't. So what? Well-reasoned answers and explanations alone will not convince people to believe against their will. So I want to end with just uh, two do's and one don't. Two do's and one don't. Here's the do first, the first do. Do be prepared to give a reason for the hope within you. I am not saying it's a bad idea to share facts and reasons and evidence and logic with people. (laughs) We should do that, right? And we're told in Scripture to be prepared. Be prepared to make a defense, to give a reason, an explanation for the hope 
that is within you. By the way, that doesn't mean we have to have all the answers to all the questions because sometimes people are afraid to give, uh, to, to, to witness because they're afraid they might get asked a question they don't know the answer to, which I would say to that, you know what, that's okay. Share your faith anyway. And if someone asks you a question you don't know the answer, say, what do you, what do you say? I don't know, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask someone, and I, can I come back to you with that? Now, if the person is sincerely interested, yes, they will say, yes, I would like to know. Come back to me with that answer, right? But we don't have to have all the answers to all the questions. We simply have to say, this is what I know, this is what I believe, this is what has happened, this is what Jesus has done in my life, and we depend on the Holy Spirit to work in that person's life. And if they ask you a question you don't know, what do you say? I don't know. But I'm going to find out. And I'm going to come back to you with an answer to that. Because there are answers. I don't have them all. None of us in this room have them all. But somebody out there in the, church, in the large church body now or in history does have it, has thought about it. So do be prepared to give a reason for the hope within you. That's the first do. Here's the, here's the one and only don't. Don't expect to argue someone into the kingdom. Doesn't work that way, does it? Well, what should we? Well, do pray for God to work in people's hearts. Do be prepared. Don't expect to argue someone in, but do pray. Do pray for God's work in people's hearts. And I would say what? Do, I could have added another one here, what? Do consider the question of how that person is invested in their beliefs and how a change in that beliefs might affect them. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for our hope in Jesus. We do thank you that we don't have to have all the answers to every question. But I pray, though, Father, that we would indeed be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have, to understand, to to study these things and be prepared to answer as best we can. But in the end, though, Lord, we know that you are the sovereign Lord. It is your spirit who must work in people's lives. And so, Lord, we pray. We pray that we would be prepared. We pray for those people in our lives that we're concerned about for their salvation, Lord, that your spirit would work in their hearts and their minds to convince them, Lord. And we pray that we would be ready, that we would be ready, that we would be prepared, that we would be faithful in prayer. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.